Hey folks, we are into August. It is August 7th, 2022, and this is a Sermon MP3 from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. This Sunday, we continue our series called Worship 101, and today we're going to be looking at what is the place of ritual in our worship. I feel a bit like Superman after baptisms, uh, having to... Uh, get all, all dressed up in a different outfit, uh, ready to do, to do battle against the forces of evil, right? But no, today we're going to look into God's words again. Uh, welcome to the humbles, uh, Leslie and Landon. Uh, married them a couple of weeks back already, and uh, they're here on Sunday morning, but congratulations, you guys. Bless you. You can't see them maybe if you're under the balcony, but they're up there, trust me, and it was a great day to be together. Well, uh, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me in the Word of God. To John chapter 4. We are in a series. Uh, we've been in a series this month uh, called Worship 101. Really, it's all about specifically what is true worship. It's a legitimate question because as we learned last week in John 4, that Jesus had an answer for it. Let me read it to you. John 4, 23 to 24. A time is coming, Jesus said, and has now come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, in most of our minds, we imagine worship as an event like this, our worship service, right? With singing and prayers and sermon. And as we learned last week, that isn't exactly what Jesus meant by true worship. We do worship here, but this is what he meant. Last week, we learned that, number one, worship is a verb. Say that with me. Worship is a verb. It's an activity. It's not just attending. It's engaging in, in the power of the Spirit and in truth, in the worship of Almighty God. In other words, as you approach God, does every part of you, your heart, your soul, your mind, and your body, give God the kind of attention that God is worthy of? Number two, we learned that we need to appreciate that worship is not about a time, a place, or a procedure. There are no limits to our worship now of God because of the cross and because of the Holy Spirit of God. He's changed all that. Because of the cross and the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, your worship is not restricted now in any way, shape, or form to any particular place, temple, mountain, time, or ritual. Number three, we learned that we need to accept that worship is all about encountering God. He's a person. He's to be encountered. And that's what worship is all about. Really, if you and I come to Sunday service, or really even if a day goes by, and we have not encountered God like the woman at the well here did, you and I need to ask Jesus to liberate us with the eternal life of God that he possesses because as Jesus put it, that life really should all the time be springing up like, a li- like living water within us. And it does not stop spilling out into every part of our life. So my definition for worship goes like this. Worship is the activity whether instinctively or willfully, of one's heart, soul, mind, and body in response to being moved by the worth of God. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I I choose to worship God in that way. I choose to be moved by what I read in the scriptures about him or even just meditating on his qualities. I get moved to worship the Lord that way. 
willfully, I, purposefully I do that. But sometimes, man, you just, you're in a moment and something just captures your attention and, God, and the reality of God just becomes so real that just instinctively you're moved to worship God because of what's happened. And so that's what I meant by that. Worship is the activity, whether instinctively, instinctively or willfully, of one's heart, soul, mind, and body in response to being moved by the worth of God. So let me add to the topic of worship the question about ritual. We're kind of moving through this series, talking about all the different aspects of worship, and we'll get to others, other kinds of expressions next week. And this is the place where we're going to talk about ritual. Is there a place for ritual in our worship? Well, Wikipedia defines, I know you should always write a paper based on what Wikipedia says, but it does a good job here. It says, Wikipedia defines ritual as a sequence of activities involving gestures, words, actions, or objects performed according to a set sequence. You hear that? So generally, there are three types of worshipers in our service today. Generally. Some of you come from churches where ritual was a really big deal. It was a really big part of what happened any time worship was expressed. Probably you came from a Catholic or an Anglican or Lutheran or an Orthodox church. Some of you come from churches where you were told that ritual is bad. That ritual is legalistic and it compromises the gospel of Jesus. That it might even be a kind of idolatry. Probably you've been... You've come from some form of evangelical background, though not all evangelicals think this way, thankfully. Some of you don't have a church background, and so you don't really have a feeling either way about ritual, although ritual does sometimes seem uh, old and stuffy and pietistic. Well, within evangelicalism, of which the alliance that the denomination we're a part of is part of, uh, there, are, there have also been at times an aversion to some things about ritual. Some things towards other groups like Catholics or Anglicans who express their worship through ritual. And they have a hard time understanding how that is different from what we're supposed to do. I'm going to give you a bit of church history now. A little bit of a church history lesson before we begin to sort of keep us in mind of what and where we've come from. Also, I want to help you to understand uh, what Jesus' mind was on this. I want to reread what I read earlier, just to keep that in your mind as we go through church history. John chapter 4, 23 to 24, time is coming, Jesus said, and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship Him in the Spirit and in truth. Now, As many of you know, the church was born at Pentecost in Jerusalem. It was not in a cathedral or a formal building like this. It was actually in a small upper room of a house in Jerusalem. From there, the gospel of Jesus moved out through different centers like Antioch and Alexandria and Rome. And in those first few decades, the apostles were the major leaders within the church. But as they were martyred and after John the apostle died... The church then appointed leaders in various regions called bishops. Now, Catholics claim that Peter was the first pope, and he could have been. There's nothing really except church history that says he was, nothing in our Bibles, though, that says he was. However, since A.D. 67, the early church did appoint a pope to lead the church. The, The first recorded pope of the early church was Linus, the bishop of Rome. 
Now, don't confuse the popes of the early church with the kind of popes you're now familiar with. The kind of pope where, uh, that we're familiar with really is sort of a, an image of the post-Reformation uh, image. Uh, a guy in a, in, a, in a strong hat and uh, white robes hosting an Easter message at the Vatican. Don't keep that in mind as you think of the, the popes of the early church. Irenaeus was one of the early church fathers, one of the early scholars of the early church. And he identifies Linus at, with the Linus of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 21. And he writes this in one of his books. He says, The blessed apostles passed on the sacred min- ministry of the episcopacy to Linus. And so we do know that Linus was a, was a pope. The, the early church did have popes. There have been 266 popes since the early church in Pentecost. But in our 2,000 years of church history, the church has morphed and it has changed into a number of different what I'll call branches. Let me give you a snapshot. In the first three pictures, as this uh, image shows you, following Pentecost, the church faced a number of challenges from persecutions and also different heresies. In the year A.D. 312, the Roman emperor Constantine embraced the Christian, uh, Christian faith, and he made it the state religion of Rome. Now, in, th- 320, uh, in 313, he published what is called the Edict of Milan. He was a brilliant man. And that ended the persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. He also chose Byzantium as his capital in 323 and renamed it Constantinople, the city of Constantine. And this allowed a great deal of freedom in the church, politically. But it was also then that the church began to wrestle with what we usually think of as kind of like church and state, that temptation. It was also around this time that the church decided that it needed to solidify its theology because, as I said, there were a number of heresies coming up in churches that the early church needed to sort of sort out and make sure that the churches were all on board with. And so the bishops, as you can imagine, all get together and they start to deal with these heresies that were entering the church. The bishops and the pope gathered in a series of what we now call seven major councils to debate theology, to pin down the church's doctrine, and especially around the idea and to define Jesus' identity, his deity and his humanity. So in AD 325, Constantine calls a great council of Nicaea, out of which this creed that we just read came from. It defined the essential doctrines of the church in a document, in a creed. And AD 381, the first council of Constantinople happened. That's where they confirmed the deity deity of the Holy Spirit and, and the humanity of Jesus. That was being wrestled with. Was he fully God? Was he fully human? What was he? In AD 431, the Council of Ephesus took place. And that was to confirm the Nicene Creed among the churches and also Mary's status within the family, uh, uh, within the royal family. And then A.D. 451, the Council of Chalcedon took place, defining the relationship between Jesus' divine nature and his human nature again, and how they manifested in his being. In A.D. 553, the Second Council of Constantinople, the third took place in A.D. 680, and then in A.D. 784, the Second Council of Nicaea. Now, that wasn't the end of the councils. There were others, but these were the, four major, the seven major ones. 
It was at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 where a big divide also took place. The majority who maintained the Nicene Creed and said, we will, we will declare this in our churches and preach this as doctrine, became what's known as the Chalcedon Church. And those who rejected the creed, or at least had troubles accepting it, they became the non-Chalcedonian church. Mostly those were the Coptics, the Jacobites, the Nestorians, the Arminians, the St. Thomas, and the Maronite churches. Well, time goes on, as you can imagine it does. And the church eventually hit another divide, known as the Great Schism of 1051 AD. At the heart of the breakup was the Roman Pope claiming to have universal jurisdiction and authority. The Orthodox Church in the East had agreed that they would honor the Pope, but because they debated on ecclesiastical manners and how things should be practiced, they decided that a council of bishops should therefore be in place and and not grant unchallenged authority to the Pope. Of course, this was just a simplified snapshot of all that history. But it was at this juncture that the church became divided into what is West and East, Catholic versus Orthodox churches. shouldn't just say verses, just Catholic and Orthodox churches. Well, time went on, and another huge split in our family took place, known as the Reformation, or the Protestant Reformation, because it was the start of Protestantism. At the root of Protestantism is the word protest, and it really was. Generally, the Protestant Reformation began when a German Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King of a few decades ago, uh, was wrestling with his own faith and practice and the theology of his Catholic church. And so he publishes what became known as his 95 Theses, and he nailed them to the huge great doors of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517. Eventually, he was excommunicated by the Catholic Church. Well, this set off a host of other reformers, and eventually the church divided into Catholic and Protestant branches, as you see on the image. Of course, you can imagine those differences, and and the way that those differences were handled created a great deal of strong controversy and suspicion and animosity on both sides, even to this day, unfortunately. Since then, the Protestant group has had a number of offshoots, sometimes due again to theological differences, sometimes due to differences of practice and culture. What does all of this have to do with ritual and in our worship? Well, it has a great deal to do with ritual, actually. Let me give you a for instance. Who here likes pierogies? Oh, come on. I know more of you like pierogies. You're just too stubborn to raise your hand in church. Do it. it uh, who likes pierogies? There you go. That's better. Well, the pierogi is a very sensitive subject amongst Polish and Ukrainian and Mennonite people. There has always been a very polite disagreement about where the pierogi originated from and how it is actually spelt and what it's made of, what fills it especially. Polish people call them pierogi, and traditionally they're filled with meat, cabbage, mushrooms, and cheese, traditionally. Ukrainian people call them vreniki, as some of you Mennonites think you call it that, but you don't. You call it Wereniki or something like that. I'm not Mennonite. <laughs> but uh, the Ukrainian version is filled with sauerkraut, hamburger, and potato and topped with heated cream or heavy cream uh, or sour cream. You're mouth-watering yet? Mennonites call them Wereniki. Some of you call it Wereniki, but you're wrong. And traditionally, 
They're filled with cottage cheese topped with sour cream and, and butter gravy. Again, is your mouth watering? Now, to show you how serious these cultures are about who originated this boiled piece of dough in a po- and a pocket of whatever, a decade ago, Poland and Ukraine united to sue Mennonites in the largest class action suit in the history of international suits. Did you know that? Their lawyer, Demetrius Petrenko, stated, these Mennonites originated in the, in the Netherlands, and, they, and yet they claim that the Vereniki is theirs. Come on. Who are they kidding, he said. They moved to Poland, then to Ukraine, and along the way, they stole our best recipes. Ooh, those are fighting words, hey? Now, no matter what your Oma or Bubba says or your grandma, the the origin of the pierogi or the Varaniki are not eternally important issues. They're important issues to some, but they're not eternally important. Church theology, however, is... And whose side you're on matters to a lot of people. And in a lot of ways, it matters to God. And over time, the theological differences that have developed between, say, Catholics and Protestants, especially the evangelical Protestants, of which we're a part of, have remained important issues. One thing I want you to remember, though, is that as much as Abraham, Moses, and David, and the apostles are all part of your faith story, and you would claim they are, This timeline that you see behind me and all that history, both Catholic and Protestant and Evangelical and Chalcedonian, non-Chalcedonian, all of that is part of your faith story too, believe it or not. This is our family, folks. This is where we came from. This is how we came about. They all have contributed to what you believe and practice in one way, shape, or form. And so we should have some respect. We should have some respect and be careful how we talk about any of the other branches of our family tree because there are fellow Christians in all of those branches, right? And just like you wouldn't want anyone bad-mouthing your brothers and sisters, Jesus doesn't like that either. Even if you think you're right and they're wrong on certain points of practice or theology. And one of the issues that evangelicals wrestle with is whether good Christians can be involved in rituals in worship. Let me just make it clear. All evangelicals already do. They just don't realize it yet. The main rituals for both Catholics and Protestants are baptism and communion. Catholics and some Protestants call these rituals sacraments. And evangelicals call, usually call them ordinances, just because they want to be different. Catholics are all consistent with their treatment on this ritual of of communion. And there are no disagreements among Catholics. But understand that there are a lot of Protestant groups like Anglicans and Lutherans that hold different positions than other Protestant groups on this ritual. Denominations aside, the main question is whether you believe that these rituals can save you or even maintain or keep you saved. For Catholics, for instance, baptism is an initiatory rite or ritual that makes you part of the Catholic Church. And since they believe there is no salvation apart from the Catholic Church, if you are not baptized into the Catholic Church, then you are not saved. Anglicans, and I think Lutherans, a good majority of them, both both Protestant denominations believe that baptism is an initiatory rite too. But it's also a means by which God makes a person born again. 
is follow their faith statements online. So for some Protestants, without baptism, you're not really saved because you're not born again. For other Protestants, however, like evangelicals like us, baptism is also an initiatory rite or ritual. But the difference is, is that it does not make you part of the church. It identifies you as a part of the church. There's a difference there. It does not make you part of the church. It identifies you as a part of the church. See, it's your profession of faith in Jesus Christ that saves you. That's it. Baptism cannot save you. It identifies you as a believer and as part of the church universal, but it cannot save you. Now, from the Bible, we know that salvation is based only on an individual declaring Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life. The one that we're really all familiar with is from Romans 10, right? Romans 10, verses 9 to 10. If you confess with your mouth or declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. For it is with your heart, not baptism, it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess and are saved. Therefore, the Bible is very clear about that, which, which is really our only rule of faith and practice, right? This Bible, which all denominations would claim. But from the Bible, it makes it very clear that baptism doesn't save you. But the saved do get baptized. That's why I said earlier, uh, as a pastor, as, as just a fellow believer, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus and you are not baptized, you need to get baptized. Because although it doesn't save you, the saved get baptized. That's just part of the deal. That's why evangelical Protestants don't practice infant baptism, for instance. We practice believer's baptism. Uh, Because an infant is not able to make the decision to make Jesus Savior and Lord of their life. Our parents cannot do that for us. So infant baptism, though it's a cute ritual, it really is irrelevant to our faith. I mean, it helps along the way as parents dedicate children in that way to help grow and nurture them in the Lord. And hopefully, eventually, they will make a profession of faith themselves. That's why a lot of churches like Catholics and Lutherans and Anglicans have confirmation later when the kids enter into their teen years. So, folks, if if you have declared Jesus Savior and Lord and you have not been baptized, even though baptism doesn't save you, you still need to get baptized because Scripture commands it. But likewise... If you were baptized as a child and you did not know what you were doing at the time and you could not declare Jesus as Savior and Lord with your own mouth, then I would encourage you to follow up on that now since you've professed faith in Jesus and ask for what we call believer's baptism. At the Welcome Center, there are little booklets on baptism. Any one of you can take one and read up on on where we stand on that. Lots more scriptures in there. And then sign up to get baptized. We'd love you to get baptized. Now remember, as I said earlier, we need to show some respect over different views held in the church. Because see, for the last 2,000 years, the church has held councils and, and, and congresses and, and assemblies to try to work out their doctrines. We still do that today. I just, our staff was just at assembly in, in Edmonton. And there were, there were issues of theology and practice that we, that we hammered out. We're still doing that ongoing because we want to be faithful to, our, to the Bible. But as always, faith and practice needs to come side by side with the Scriptures. Not what a particular denomination believes, but about what the Scriptures teach. 
And you, I believe you're smart enough to read the Bible on your own and come to your own belief on that and practice, and practice what God wants. Likewise, communion is another ritual, baptism and communion. And both Catholics and Protestants of all stripes practice it. Catholics, for instance, call it the Eucharist. It's a sacrament of the church. Evangelicals, again, because they like to be different, usually call it an ordinance. Now, Catholics and Protestants differ with the spiritual importance of this ritual, usually around actual, about how much of the actual body and blood of Jesus are in the elements of the bread and the cup. And we're going to be observing communion later. For Catholics, the difference is they believe that the elements of the bread and the wine do not actually convey the grace of Jesus' sacrifice on the believer unless those elements, the host and the, and, the, and the cup, have been blessed by a Catholic priest. And only after a believer has been to confession and confessed all known sin. Therefore, if you have not been baptized into the Catholic Church and, and you have not been to, to confession, then you are not allowed to take communion. One of our elders was just at a Catholic church for an event, and, uh, and he faced the same thing. They made it very clear that he was not allowed to take communion. For evangelicals, however, generally the bread and the cup do not ever become the actual body and blood of Jesus. They represent them for sure, but only one's faith in Christ conveys the grace that that sacrifice of Christ promises. Only, only our faith in Christ. And that grace does not require a a priest to bless the elements in order for the believer to receive the grace that Christ promises. And that's because our branch of Christianity takes the Bible literally when it says that we are all priests in God's house. Listen to it. This is from St. Peter himself. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4, 5, and 9. As you come to him, that is Christ, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through, Christ, through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Hallelujah. Now, the first pope, as the first pope affirms, when you come to Christ, God makes you part of His holy, royal priesthood. That means that any one of you can serve communion. Any one of you can baptize another believer because we are all priests in God's house. That's why here at Lawson, the elders usually, and sometimes others, serve communion. I don't usually anymore. And why there are others who have, been, who have baptized other people in our church. Now, there are other rituals too that the entire Christian family practices. We evangelicals also practice some of them. Our worship services are ritual. Did you know that? They are. They follow a very set prescribed order. Sometimes changed up a little bit, but it's, our, it's how we believe God has wanted us to conduct our service today. Some traditions call the order of, of worship uh, a liturgy. It really is just a ritualized form of how we engage God on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. There is also the ritual of laying on of hands. We make time for that every Sunday after the liturgy. 
where people can come to a pew and they can have hands laid on them for prayer and for healing, for blessing, for spiritual protection. Again, that's where we stand in our shared holy priesthood and we grant one another the, the, the grace of intercession. There's also foot washings. Foot washings are a ritual in some churches. And as a priest in God's house, you can lay hands on other people and you can wash feet as well. There's also the rituals of holy matrimony and funerals. They're not the same, by the way, okay? Just so you know. These are rituals in the church. And they're not, sometimes we don't think of them that way. But you you look at the common book of prayer. You look at other uh, liturgy things. And they say this is the ritual of holy matrimony, the ritual of funeral. Christmas and Easter and other feast days in the church have become rituals for us. Some parts of the church family are more serious about maintaining the church Christian calendar and rituals within them. Prior to, to Christmas, here at Lawson, we follow Advent, don't we? The ritual of Advent. And we walk through the candles and we, we do our readings and we do our prayers. Prior, uh, prior to Easter, some Christians and some churches engage in the ritual of Lent where they give up certain things and they fast and they, they pray for extended periods of time. Some practice the ritual of Via Dolorosa, a, a, a worshipful, prayerful observance that memorializes the way of Christ's uh, suffering to the cross. For some of you, you have created a ritual around how you do your devotions every day. It's the same practice every time. And maybe you even include certain things in your, in your devotional practice to help you engage and ritualize that time with God better. Some light candles. Some traditions utilize prayer beads to walk their, the believers through the Lord's prayer. Here is an ancient uh, uh, prayer wheel you'll see here up on the screen. It's an ancient prayer wheel that has been found from the Middle Ages. And it, what it does is it helps a believer ritually walk through the worship of God, his characteristics from creation to second coming, through the Gospels, the Lord's Prayer, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's all in there, believe it or not. Just kind of little benchmarks, but it helps the believer to walk through the Scriptures and do that. It becomes a ritual. And there are many ways that we ritualize our worship in the church, but are they bad? Are any of them bad? Well, here's my guide. Before I just say, yeah, there are some that are bad, let let me just give you the guide. If you have the guide, then you have enough to know whether or not you can and should participate in any form of ritual. Here's the guide. It's from Matthew's Gospel, the 15th chapter, verses 1 to 4. Are you there? Let me read it. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? They don't, here's the ritual, they don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition and ritual? Here's what we learn from Jesus about ritual and tradition. Number one, the things we need to ask ourselves. Number one, ritual does not save us. Ritual does not save you. According to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, eating with ceremonial or ritualized washings was necessary because if you didn't, it made you unclean. Meaning that you could not gain an audience with God if you were unclean. So they had these practices, these rituals of washing hands and other rites of purification. And ongoing uncleanness for them 
compromised your part in, in Israel's salvation. Understand from Jesus that ritual does not ever save you. So when you're looking at a ritual, whether it's one you're already doing or one that you're considering, think of that first. Number one, ritual does not ever save you. Number two, understand that ritual should never elevate the ritual above God's word. Ritual should never elevate the ritual above God's word. Verse 3, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition or ritual? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law had done that, didn't they? These traditions were the commentaries on the law of God, a sort of a, a guidebook to the law of God written by the prominent teachers and elders within Judaism. And in, in time, what happened is that they actually got elevated. They gained sort of scripture-level authority among the Jews, as did certain teachers. Sometimes we still do this to people in the church, don't we? We tell people that they should or shouldn't do certain things if they want to stay saved and not miss out on God's blessing. Let me give you the words of the Apostle Paul from Colossians 2, 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. All of those feast days, all of those events had rituals involved in them, very specific ones. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Now, Paul is not forbidding practicing the ritual that was in those feast days. He's saying, don't let others determine how you worship the Lord and by what ritual. However, never let your ritual be elevated to the level of Scripture or compromise the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, the reality must be found in Christ. Here's the deal. If you're worried about how someone else expresses their worship, this is my mantra. Mind your own business. Really, that's what it comes down to. If they are exalting Christ, if they realize the ritual doesn't save them, if, if they don't elevate the ritual above God's word or the gospel, then leave them be. Let them practice. Let them try it. Number three, this is our third guide. Ritual can help you express your worship to God. Worship can help you express your worship to God. I don't know about you, but sometimes as you're in your devotional time with God, sometimes you struggle to be fresh, come up with new ways of expressing how you feel about God, how to engage God. That's what rituals have been for the church over the ages. A way to bring freshness and try some things out for a season to help you gain more of a focus to exalt Christ. Adding a Christ-exalting, biblically appropriate ritual to our worship can bring a freshness to our worship. You and, I are already, you and I already know the benefit and joy we get from participating in the Lord's Supper, the ritual of, of communion. So why not add that ritual of communion to your next Bible study that you host at your place or here at the church? Try adding it to a family gathering where you're all believers and all share in the faith of Jesus. Maybe you want to try another ritual like foot washing. Here's an idea. Maybe on your anniversary, instead of dinner and a movie, uh, you might want to talk to your wife first about this, but instead of a dinner and a movie, you might want to 
create a meal together, and then afterwards share communion together, and then wash one another's feet as a way of saying that you want to be a selfless servant of Christ in your marriage. How many times does your anniversary go by and there's nothing spiritual about it? This would be a good ritual to enter into that. And and start by repeating the words of Jesus. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a servant, uh, nor is a master greater than the one who sent him. And follow up by saying, my master is Jesus, and I serve him by serving you. Wouldn't that be a great way? There are all kinds of other rituals and expressions of worship that you can try and practice. A really good thing for you to do, it's an old classic. It's by A.W. Tozer. It's called The Pursuit of God. And this is all about getting into the face of God, understanding how to worship God. And even in one, part, one chapter, there's a part about ritual. You could also read his other book called The Miss, uh, Worship, The Missing Jewel of the Church. I mean, this is a guy who lived about 100 years ago. He believed this, that, that even then, the church was missing that precious jewel of worship and engaging with God because he feared that the evangelical church had strayed so far away in trying to avoid anything of the, the orthodox, uh, uh, say, Catholic and Anglican and Lutheran and ritualized churches that they have abandoned all those things of meaning. So it would be a good idea to read some of these good classic books by authors we respect. So here are the three points of our guide again. Number one, ritual does not save you. Remember that. Number two, ritual should never elevate the ritual above God's word or the gospel. Number three, ritual can help you express your worship to God. So be creative. Try. Express your heart to God in whatever way 